Alright fam, get your BFG ready to blast me when I forget what actor was in what movie because it's time for Twig 238. This week, we'll make a second attempt at recapping some of the biggest mobile releases of the first half of 2023. We're going to talk about Will Smith's latest career pivot and so much more. Joining me today, Eric Kress, Principal at Gossamer Consulting Group. What up? Laura Taranto, Head of New Games at Big Fish. Hello. Philip Black, Game Economist at Game Economist Consulting. Hey, hey. Jen Donahoe, Head of Publishing at High Def. Howdy, everyone. And I, of course, am Ethan Levy, co-founder at Stealth. Y'all, I'm just going to open with a little banter because it seems like a lot of people on the Deconstructor Fund Slack are quite invested in the mystery of what I'm doing when I'm not podcasting. Since announcing the co-founder at Stealth last week, I've had a lot of inquiries into what I'm building, who my co-founder is, what's the platform, what's the game, what's the genre, where can I follow you? Thank you so much, Twiggies, for being interested I didn't know you cared, because my wife certainly does not. But I got to say, I'm going to keep most of it pretty close to the chest, and I'm sure I'll drip some good news out as it happens. But anybody else? Any fun life updates? Let me see. I know I have something. Oh, right. I'm 52 years old. Didn't know you could count that high. Old man Cress. You made it. Happy birthday. Yes. Happy birthday. Yeah, I think it's time for the third life crisis, but we will see. But anyway, yeah, 52 years old, hard to celebrate. But I have a twin brother, if you guys didn't know that. So at least we can suffer it in together. So half the time we're recording with Mark Cress and we don't even know. Which one's the nice guy? Which one's the a-hole? Nobody knows. Believe me, I'm the a-hole. I'm the evil twin, for sure. He's much nicer than I am. But anyway, for all those guys out there that are like in this age bracket, I think I've had like two midlife crises so far, right? One was when I was in my 40s when these kids were like robbing me blind, paying for all this fucking bullshit private school and doing everything for them and the family. I'm like, what the fuck about me, dude? Like, I got to do something for myself, right? So I went out and bought a Porsche. That's like that. That's the classic old man. I'm sacrificing too much and I need to do something for myself, my selfish ways, right? So kind of dumb, but key milestone in life. And then the second was a career crisis when I started this consulting gig and like two or three years in, things weren't going as well as I had hoped. I'm like, dude, I got to go back to industry. And everyone's like, no, you shouldn't. Chris Petrovic would like set me straight. He's like, dude, don't do that. That's not where you belong. And so I got some key advice and kept moving on. And now it's been almost nine years doing this consulting thing. But now the final, I hope anyway, the final midlife crisis is what to do from here until retirement, right? You know, retirement's coming up for me. I don't know about you. I'm not working past 60. So evil twin, just to help you bridge that gap from 52 to 60 unscathed (laughs) and keep you in Porsches. I've been on this podcast for 18 months and it's time to admit, I have no fucking clue what your work actually is. So to celebrate your birthday, how about you shill a little and tell us what services you provide other than being extremely entertaining on a podcast? Because I I don't know. I've been here almost every week for a year and a half. It's almost stupid simple, right? 25 years of experience in gaming. All I do is advise investors and industry for that matter on the game sector, right? So both macro trends, company trends, and product trends, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm a fundamental analyst, right? So I don't do buy and sell recommendations on stocks, but I just cover the game companies that are publicly traded. And I just provide data points on what these companies do or what's happening with these companies. So some of the things I share on the podcast, but other stuff I don't really talk about on the podcast. As an example, for the CG project thing, which I think I was covering on the podcast as well, Company in Wall Street expected them to sell like 50 million plus of this game. And I say with absolute conviction, based on talking to a gajillion people in the industry, that there's no fucking way this game is selling 50 million units for this reason, this reason, this reason. People short the stock. They make a gajillion dollars because they short like $100 million worth. They make a gajillion dollars for the firm. I look good and they're happy, right? We move on to the next, right? (laughs) Or on the positive side, something like Zynga, right? So Zynga was basically left for dead, right? The stock was trading at three or four bucks. And, you know, Don Matrick, whoever else was managing that fucking company, right? Completely just managed it into the ground, right? But when Frank took over, I was like, this is 
the new era for Zynga, right? And I believed in Frank's vision and his strategy, and I knew a lot of the players. And so I can say with reasonable conviction that they're going to be able to execute against their strategy and make this thing work. And I was bullish for them for two years. And people were owning the stock, doubling down and making tons of money. And then when things kind of fell off, I basically went negative again because I knew that the strategy was no longer working. And so I made a good call going up and going down on that particular one. But sometimes I get it wrong. And sometimes the stocks don't act in the right way. For example, as we speak, freaking Unity and AppLovin are rising, right? Despite the fact that fingerprinting is going to be blocked and the majority of their business is going to get trashed, right? So it's crazy, right? But of course, JR is a lot smarter than I am. And he is doing what he does in pitching the company and building this artificial intelligent narrative, which is complete nonsense, of course, as he does every time his stock is in trouble. He just comes up with something. He brings out the shiny penny as the entire foundation of the company is fucking crumbling. He said, look at this. We got AI going on here. So did you see that Washington Post article with JR where he went into AI and basically he said what he said at the GameSpeak conference, which is, oh, imagine in your in a world like Grand Theft Auto and all of the people are alive and run by AI. And yes, I'm kind of with you on that, Chris. (sighs) He's brilliant, though. I mean, hats off to that guy, dude. He could sell iced Eskimos, you know, so whatever. Anyway, back to the conclusion. Generally, I am trying to predict trends in the industry, estimating potential products and articulating kind of the risks and opportunities on each of the publicly traded names. You know, I do lots of primary research, listening to podcasts, talk to a gajillion people in the industry and get their point of view. And that helps me inform my point of view and relay that for people that trade the stocks. So, all right, wonderful. And then finally, I mean, for companies, I generally do product strategy, right? So, looking at the market, seeing what opportunities there are, what the trends are, what it means when UA is dead, like how are you going to respond to that? So that's kind of what I was doing for Warner. Thank you. Now, finally, after a year and a half, I think we've crossed the bridge of friendship because I know what you do with your time. <laughs> Phil, when it's your birthday, I'll ask you what the fuck you do for work because I have no idea either. But uh, Jen, Laura, anything to share? I like the mystery. So Jen invited me to an event last Saturday and I said, you know what, I'm just going to book a ticket, fly to LA from Seattle for one night. And I I went, so we got to meet in person. The event in LA was very cool. It was called Stone Soup Social. And it was a round table and fireside chat. It was was really fun. So thank you, Jen. You're quite welcome. It was so lovely to meet you in person and realize actually how short I am. Laura's very tall and I'm very short, I guess. We need a full meetup so we can figure out who's the shortest member Dude, Ethan, you're the shortest, dude. Really? I'm like 5'5". Five, five. Ah, I'm taller than 5'5". Five, five. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> we were working remotely at Riot and the team, we finally got to meet up. All of my team came in and said, I thought you were taller. And I'm like, I don't know if that's a compliment or not. <laughs> taller in stature. You loom large in their minds. You have yes. big, tall energy. I have tall energy, I guess. So one of the things I wanted to mention about this event is we got to spend time with Joni, who's the CEO of Wiggy, which is Women in Games International. And they're a nonprofit that help women in the games industry from workshops to mentorship to knowledge sharing. And they're looking for sponsorship opportunities. So a quick shill for that company, because they do a lot of great work to help women in our industry. And you can even partner with them in lots of different ways. So Check that out. Wiggy Women's in Games International. And Chris, I wanted to ask you, is this Gossamer of Gossamer Consulting? This guy right here? Is it? Is it the guy? <laughs> no. Is that the- <laughs> they, when I left Gabam, they totally teased me about using Gossamer. No, Gossamer is kind of like a wings or web or something like that. And Oh, got it. Okay. Whatever. Anyway, it, it's the name of my character in World of Warcraft. Got Come it. on, let's be honest, right? I've been using the same name for all my characters in every MMO for 20 years. And so I just used that for the name. No, it has nothing to do with the character from Looney Tunes. Yeah, I was holding up the big orange guy who was in Bugs Bunny or something like that. (laughs) And also for your birthday, I think the listeners should give us at least 52 five-star reviews in their podcasters of choice. I think that would be an amazing gift. Yes, I don't think we often ask. So let's go ahead and ask. Go in there and hit five stars. The more you shout at Cress to yourself while listening, the more important it is that you give him a five-star review. 
We need those reviews, Twiggies. All right, great call. <laughs> Five for 52. <laughs> All right. Now I'm going to get to everybody's absolute favorite part of the show, the corrections. We've got a couple this week, and I'll kick it off. Last week, we talked about those super sexy Jonas Brothers and their amazing physique. We talked about super sexy Pedro Pascal, the internet's daddy. And I said, very incorrectly, that Pedro Pascal did not have any famous roles as a detective. I got kind of an on-air correction, but I want to fully own it. How could I gloss over his work as DAA agent Javier Pena in Narcos? So Narcos may have only lasted three seasons, but hopefully Pedro returns as Detective Tim Rockford in more Merge Mansion shorts. What else? What else did we get wrong, y'all? I have one. So we talked last episode about live ops and we were talking very in depth about the lava feature in Royal Match. And I should have called out, it was a copy of Candy Royale in Candy Crush Saga. Nicholas Arnell actually writes an account of his designer journey on LinkedIn. If you want more details, follow him and you can have a read. On my end, last episode, I talked about PUBG having an incredible cosmetics season based on our beloved Power Rangers, which in turn is based on Super Genkai. No, it is not Super Genkai. It is Super Sentai. That was completely incorrect. (laughs) I've never seen people fast jump so quickly into my DMs since I was on a dating app. It was incredible how fast they were there. You know, just after the episode, I was I was getting hailed. Are you telling me you dressed up as a Super Sentai when you were on a dating app? Is that what I heard? Precisely. Precisely. (laughs) Oh, my God. All right. Let's go to the news. So we've got a little bit of Game of Thrones action over at Electronic Arts, where some predict that Laura Maielli is heir apparent should Andrew Wilson vacate the throne. Jen, take it away. Oh, that's a good one. All right. So EA is undergoing a major reorg. They announced that they have two different divisions. So EA Sports is one. EA Entertainment is the other. And so Laura Maielli has been appointed president of EA Entertainment. So that's basically all of the central resources, technology, central development, and everything that product-wise that isn't in sports. As part of that team, Vince Ampella will lead studios responsible for games like Apex Legends, Star Wars Battlefield. Samantha Ryan will lead lifestyle franchises and single-player experiences so that The Sims falls in there. Jeff Karp will continue to lead mobile. And then Cam Weber has been appointed the president of EA Sports. So my quick take, having worked at EA for many years and actually worked with Laura Mielli, is that it looks like an EA succession episode. So she's going to be moving into a president role, back into controlling product after her COO role, which looks like actually they're eliminating that role, by the way, and giving her more to do, which is why I think this looks like a game of succession. So it's a bit unclear from all of the reporting exactly how the Game of Thrones for mobile will go. It was like, well, you know, does sports keep mobile? Because Jeff Karp still has responsibility for it. From what I read, it looks like they have to work together. So that'll be interesting. So with my two HBO references, maybe they should sell off part of EA to Warner Discovery, or maybe they should sell EA Sports to Disney ESPN and really combine sports. So I don't know. What do you think, Phil, about all this? I don't know. I think I describe EA Mobile as still Cousin Greg from Secession. You keep wanting him to do something interesting. He never really quite delivers, but he's super funny to watch. And it was amazing to read this PR release and realize that mobile wasn't even really called out in this reorganization. It was just between really entertainment and sports. You know, as a former EA employee, this is pretty much how they were already organized. This is how they operated internally within the different studios. The only thing I really got out of this is it's another pro Vince move. And every investor call, everyone wants to know what Vince is doing. You know, Vince, of course, the creator of Infinity Ward and, of course, the creator of Respawn. Everyone wants to know what Vince is up to. He got handed the keys to Battlefield recently. And now he's getting the keys, it looks like, to a broader role inside of all games that are not sports. And do you think Vince cares about mobile? No, Vince doesn't give two shits about mobile. I'm sure Apex Legends was forced into him unwillingly. But Vince, moving up in the world, I didn't think there was much more he could move up in, but I expect to see a chief by his title at some point soon. I've been covering this company for a long time, and I also worked at this company, and this is how they've always been structured, right? It's games and sports, right? So you basically separate the sports business from the games business, and so that executives can get paid based upon the performance of the sports business, because that's what makes all the fucking money, right? The games business, without, with the exception of Sims, is an absolute train wreck on a year-to-year basis, right? So 
that might be why they're structuring this way so that the execs can get their due, right? So the sports people aren't sacrificing their bonuses because the games people can't get their shit together, you know, maybe, right? That was historically, by the way, I'm talking about. But now that Vince is in charge of games, like now they may be able to perform really well. And so they should differentiate those two groups. So I am actually very bullish on EA, generally speaking, with their pipeline and the fact that Vince is there and Laura's in charge, blah, 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 right? So so this could basically just realign the company in order to execute against a strategy against non-sports, right? Because sports, again, is their cash cow that makes all the profit, basically, with the exception of Sims. And then mobile is just an absolute clusterfuck right now. So ironically, the only thing that's doing well in mobile is FIFA, right? Which is basically going to go to the sports division, most likely, because that's where it was before, right? <laughs> so now what do they have? They just have the declining asset of glue and, and the rest of their shitty portfolio that's doing nothing. So maybe they start thinking about divesting out of mobile again. How does Jeff Karp survive? That's what I want to know. Simpsons Tapped Out was a crusher. Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes was a crusher. They've got great brands. Playdemic. Playdemic. That game is like in the shit show right now. It's not doing shit right now. There are two Sims games, Sims Mobile and Sims Free Play, which continue to do really well. You're out of your mind. I'm not saying that those are, oh my God, EA Mobile is on fire with everything. But when you group it together with all of the Sims and most of the Sims business is on PC and free of platform fees. And so from a profit perspective, Sims might prop up actually a lot of the EA entertainment. It used to be called EA Games because you're right. It's all been basically the same organization. I do want to stop here and pour one out for my beloved Bioware, because during my tenure at EA, and I think I might have overlapped Jen and Cress with you at some point, that was when they organized into the four labels, Game, Sims, Sports, and Bioware. It was when my tiny little studio, EA2D, got folded into the doctor's domain. We became Bioware San Francisco. And just like For people out there who are kind of more rank and file wondering what this means, you know, my experience was nothing really changes with your day to day when your boss's boss's boss changes, right? Like these sort of executive restructurings don't have (laughs) a lot of immediate effect on what you're doing each day. I think it's just kind of interesting, funny, historically to compare the path of RPG development at Bethesda, where Elder Scrolls Online is still kicking ass and Starfield is about to sell a bajillion copies. And you look at that and you look at Bioware, where SWOTOR is moving out of EA entirely into that broadsword studio that kind of specializes in keeping those older MMOs alive. And we're all here praying that Dragon Age Dreadwolf is the return to form that brings us back to the glory days when Dragon Age Inquisition was like game of the year quality. So the two trajectories here between Bioware and Bethesda could not be more different. And I love those games that they make. And I'm hoping that Dreadwolf is kind of the start of the resurgence. I wanted to talk to you about Heroic Labs. Building a successful game is hard enough without worrying about building your own game tech as well. Heroic Labs provides a comprehensive game stack to help you get your game into market faster and scale beyond the competition. With their Unity Game Framework Hero, you can cut development and prototyping time in half and quickly add social, economy, and reward systems to grow your game. Satori, the live ops platform built specifically for the games industry, lets you run live events, A-B tests, deliver dynamic content to players, and always keep your game growing. Nakama, the industry's leading open source game server, lets you develop locally, providing all social and competitive features for your game, and then seamlessly transition to their Heroic Cloud hosted service and easily scale to meet the largest of audience demands. Find out how to get started at HeroicLabs.com. Want to know how your results stack up against other gaming apps? Well, now you can. AppsFlyer, the industry leader in measurement and mobile analytics, just released a new tool providing benchmarks on 21 key growth metrics for over 20 categories in 25 markets for both iOS and Android. And it's available now for free at appsflyer.com benchmarks. Yes, you heard that correctly, completely free. In just one click, you can easily compare installs, retention, revenue, media cost, and much, much more. With these benchmarks, you'll be able to get intel on your competitors, set goals based on insights from the top 10% of mobile games, explore new markets and growth opportunities, inform soft launches, and understand market dynamics and trends so that you can adapt your UA strategy accordingly. 
Over the past seven years, AppsFlyer's industry data reports, trends, and insights have helped thousands of mobile app marketers to excel at their jobs and grow their apps. Trust them. They know their data. Head to appsflyer.com benchmarks now for more info. Next up, we have kind of a little finger-esque turn from Cress, who... Cress, this blew my mind when I saw it this morning. You have something positive to say about VR and subscriptions in a single story. This is a sign of the midlife crisis right here. I didn't think the Alzheimer's set in this early. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, your comments made me become so negative on this whole thing now. I was actually just going to give them a shout out for doing something at least reasonably smart. Be positive. Be positive. No, I can't. I can't now. I completely ruined me. I'm sorry. MetaQuest announced that they're doing a subscription service for eight bucks a month or $60 annually to get access to two pieces of content every month for the year or something like that. And what I was going to say is that this kind of actually makes sense, right? Because no one is playing these (laughs) stupid Quest devices. So why not give them access to new content every month to give them excuse to come back so they can improve their retention number and hopefully like actually make a platform as opposed to a tchotchke device that sits on the shelf and collects dust, right? And so I was saying, like, this is obviously not a very attractive model for publishers, as I've said many times, but I think it could be cool to hopefully increase engagement. But the titles that they're looking to put in there, like the titles are kind of not very trashy titles, so it's not really all that interesting or exciting, but they could make it more compelling. But to be clear, this is a PlayStation Plus model. This is not a Xbox Game Pass model. This is not new games that they're offering every month. These are old games and lots of really old games that are not necessarily going to drive a lot of adoption. So then that was what I was going to say, which was reasonably positive, I guess, depending on how you look at it. But now I'm thinking to myself, look at how desperate they've become. They, they, they can't support their platform with actual real content. So now they're just giving away shite. They're like shining up the piece of shite and giving it out to people so that people come back, right? Like this is almost a sign of desperation and then begging developers to be part of this fiasco that is MetaQuest. Any thoughts here besides mine? For the first time, and I like the idea of VR and I like everything that's coming. I was not impressed with this. I don't see that the values there, this reminded me of like glossy box for VR and to pay for meta to select two games they deem as gems or classics was a thumbs down for me. I don't see the value in it. I felt incredibly negative when I'm usually the positive voice for this platform. (laughs) (laughs) I think that makes sense when it's limited to older titles, but, and I know Chris, how you feel about Apple Arcade and what Netflix is doing, but now Meta's moving to subscription from a business model, are we seeing that this model is now a loss leading, maybe break even at the best, that it's an engagement model to keep players in their ecosystem? Maybe if we think about it more like that, instead of anything to do with revenue, you know, maybe that's not a bad idea if that levels up to your company goal, if you need to sell hardware. Like if you're Apple and you're trying to sell devices and keep people in your ecosystem, If you're Netflix and you want to keep people subscribed, is this the right play if it levels up to another KPI? What? Apple Arcade, I mean, it couldn't keep its way out of a box. It's, it's, no one is subscribing to these services. They're complete and other failures. They're not keeping anyone involved. And there's also Luna too, by the way. Let's not forget about that disaster. These have all been failures. This is the blind leading the blind leading the blind. Like, what are they looking to as like the unit of success? These are failures. I am a happy PlayStation Plus subscriber. I mean, it's a completely different service, though. No, no, no. Okay. So, see, I think here's what these big tech guys are doing, right? They're conflating the popularity and success of PlayStation Plus and Game Game Pass by providing subscriptions to platforms that are fucking not successful, right? So, like, this is the problem. That's what they're doing. I'm sure of it, right? That, that That's how they're looking at it. The problem is that they're doing it from an act of desperation, like trying to get people back on things. Dude, PlayStation Plus doesn't need a premium service to get people to play the fucking PlayStation, you know, like they just use that to charge people more money, right. And give away catalog games that had no value. Right. So they're just milking their customers for money, like to pay for backend services that are far less expensive than what they were charging for the service, you know? So anyway, 
it was a different world. And so I just think that these services are so bad, there's no engagement that they're kind of desperate, right? And that's what they're doing. Does that make sense? Also want to shout out, there's only 270 games on Quest 2 right now for Quest. And I just did a quick Google search. There's like over 4,000 for PlayStation. All right. Well, next up, because I think we've beaten this topic to death. Laura, I hear Will Smith has a new game out there. Does it slap? Does Will Smith's new game slap? Learning so many terms. We've got HD from, I didn't realize I'm the only one who hasn't worked at EA Mm -hmm. out of this group. And now I have slaps, which is like Gen Z slang. You need to hire Laura (laughs) just to complete the bingo card here. Anyway, moving. Okay. So Tencent and Lightspeed Studios, which is a subsidiary of Tencent, launched an open world, launches an open world multiplayer RPG survival shooter. It features Will Smith in the game as a guide and thus in all the trailers, which I think is a key point. And they're referencing his survival movie background, which they don't call it out directly, but I assume it's I Am Legend. It's for mobile and PC. I originally put it for HD, but then I was corrected. It's technically not HD because it's not next-gen console. So it's just mobile PC. And it's so it's on Steam, Google Play, and iOS. My first question was to Phil and or Ethan, does the world need more survival shooters? Phil, go. That's how enthusiastic we are dead silence when someone says survival shooter. It's a very strange genre. This isn't exactly an extraction shooter. And by the way, rest in peace to the cycle frontier, which died today. Another extraction shooter hits the can. This is a really weird, very strange game. It looks like it's geared more towards the East than it is the West, which makes Will Smith an interesting choice. I'm not quite sure how well he does in the East. But when you start up Undawned, you get a character creator, almost ripped out of straight an MMO game, which is unusual to see on mobile and unusual to see in the West. It's landscape. It's a shooter. It feels like this is going to be an uphill battle. And not only that, by the way, the art is very much geared towards the East rather than the West. So it's hard for me to figure out if this is going to succeed in the West, but Shooters have not done well right now in the West. It looks like Call of Duty, PUBG, Free Fire. Like these are games that have, you know, elements of success. At least Call of Duty does really well in the West. But did you just say Call of Duty is kind of successful? What the fuck are you smoking over in Stockholm? No, I'll, I'll, give, I'll, give, I'll, give, I'll give it way more. Credit. Oh, my God. Like a billion dollars a year successful. isn't enough for you? <laughs> Hyper successful. But a lot of that comes from China. A lot of that comes from the East, despite being a Western IP. You'd be surprised. Just wait till he brings up that other game later on that's really killing it on Steam. (laughs) And there's a Steam skew. I think we should at least point that out. There's a Steam skew for Undawned, which is a trend that we're seeing mostly out of Eastern developers. So Tencent is throwing on all of these Unreal-based games that primarily exist on mobile onto Steam, and they're doing okay. So Undawned is doing probably around 40 to 50,000 DAU. You know, that's something, you know, if it's zero marginal cost and you just click a button and it's export, you know, why not put it on Steam? So at least we have that trend continuing, but it's unclear that this is going to do well in the West. In terms of does the world need more survival shooters, I think shooter as a genre is just like match three. The appetite is bottomless, right? You're never going to convince me that the world can't handle another popular shooter by taking a market share away from an existing shooter, right? Just look at a uh, battle bit remastered we talked about the other. I mean, there are incumbents and it's hard to overcome the incumbent advantage of worldwide crushers like Call of Duty and Garena Free Fire, but that wouldn't dissuade me from working on another shooter. But just checking in with our friends at Data AI, we're seeing an estimated 13 million downloads in the first two weeks. That's a lot of downloads for global superstar Will Smith. I haven't played it much. I haven't played it at all. So no comment on the quality, but the revenue per download looked pretty weak, you know, around 30 cents or so, according to Data AI. Jen, do you see this as more Pedro and Merge Mansion or Jonas and Candy in terms of demo market fit? Reference to last week's episode where we were evaluating (laughs) celebrities and are they helpful or not in promoting the game. So from a demographic fit in his past movies, you know, there's I Am Legend. They're all, you know, the one where he was a twin or something, or it was his younger self. Gemini man. Gemini man. Even back to Independence Day, right? Like Will Smith running around with a gun seems to be a little bit of a fit, but he is still polarizing coming out of last year's Oscar incident. Interestingly, though, in some of the numbers, he's been rebounding in his likability. So according to a survey by YouGov, he was liked by 56% of respondents and disliked by 24%. So sometimes what's more important is who says that they don't like you versus like you. 
This was up from the lowest point that he had at 49% likability. So he's still off of where he was before the incident. He had a high of 66% liked. So he's rebounding, you know, not too bad. So I also took a look at the trailer just to see what they were doing with him. And also, you know, Laura pointed out that he's got some Instagram stories promoting the game. So what was really interesting for me is that you can barely tell it's him in the CG trailer until the very end where they close up on his face for what feels like a really, really long time. I think they were like, look, it's Will Smith. Really, 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 it's him. There was no VO, so you didn't get to hear his kind of iconic voice. They didn't pay enough for a voice session. Yeah, so that typically means, number one, they don't have the right, or I don't know why you wouldn't use his voice unless you didn't have the rights to do that or you didn't do a VO session with him. Although, interesting, there's all kinds of crazy AI that you can do to replicate someone's voice. But anyway, so this seems like a little bit more of like a subtle partnership than what we saw back in the day with like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Mobile Strike or, you know, things like that. So I'm still trying to figure out how they're utilizing him. I think he's a character inside the game who ushers you through certain missions, which that could be pretty interesting if it's a long-term character. That would make a lot of sense from a gameplay perspective. All right. Well, speaking of another surprising return this week, Stadia is dead. Long live Stadia, right? Jen, what can you tell us about the latest rebirth of game streaming over at Google? So there was quite a lot of chatter on LinkedIn about this topic overall. So it all kicked off in a Wall Street Journal article. And what it looks like is YouTube is internally testing a product for playing online games. So according to an email sent to employees at parent company Google, signaling ambitions to move beyond video hosting into games that can easily be played and shared between users. So they're doing some internal tests for a new YouTube product called Playables, which gives players access to games on mobile or PC, so both platforms, according to this email that was reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. So they're trying to say, We kind of saw something maybe we weren't supposed to see. Google has come out and said, you know, we will kind of neither confirm nor deny that this project is going on. But, you know, if you're asking your employees to test something, that is definitely something going on. So players would be able to play these games instantly on YouTube PC and apps for both iOS and Android. So what's also interesting is that Google already has a division that's dedicated to quick play instant games on HTML5, which I think is a different technology than what we're doing in the YouTube playables. And so that platform is called GameSnacks. And GameSnacks, also interesting, is part of the Google advertising division. So it's not clear if these teams will actually work together, if one is more ad-driven or not. So I would love if this project turned into playable ads on YouTube and open up a new ad opportunity for PC and mobile games. This could be a real boost to YouTube as an ad platform and maybe compete with what TikTok is really bringing to the table. TikTok is crushing it in the world of games. We talked last time that half of all views on TikTok are game-related content. So that's half of 3 trillion views a month is game-related content. So that's pretty crazy. So Cress, maybe this makes your son a believer in YouTube again. Or also, you know, maybe Google's finally getting a little bit of benefit for some of that Stadia tech that they shut down. When is this going to stop? Like, when are we going to stop these big techs trying to do things in games? Just stop co-opting games. Just stop it, right? This is not what the gamer wants, right? They don't want these little tchotchke fucking games on YouTube. They don't want HTML5 games. Just stop, right? Yeah, maybe it's a great advertising vehicle. Maybe it's a way of competing with TikTok. But they're going to be delivering shitty content that no one wants, right? So... The TikTok content that you're talking about is not games. It's content that is related to games, right? So, like, you're not playing games on fucking TikTok, or at least not yet, right? Is that right? I think they're testing some in-game playables similar to what Snap did before they shut down the entire division last summer. Yeah, of course. So I think they're still testing, you know, the idea of do you want to socially play games together? I mean, Zynga even made games for Facebook that did this back in the day. I'm with you. I don't necessarily think that the right answer is, hey, players want to play games inside of YouTube, but from an advertising perspective, because we know playable ads work. 
Right. So, so I am not going to argue their core business of playable ads, right? Like anything ad tech wise and advertising, Google, go for it, man. You guys are rock stars. Like, you know exactly what you're doing. You're far smarter about it than I am. But stop fucking trying to make games, right? Like they've done this a million times and it just doesn't work. And fundamentally, the reason is, is because they don't understand the customer. Like customers in the West don't want this shit, right? They don't want to play tchotchke games like this. They don't. Whoa, whoa. Hyper casual is one fourth of downloads. What are you talking about? The demand is through the roof. I mean, I've been drinking a lot of hyper casual Kool Aid. Right, right. Got it. Fine. That's what I'm saying. That's fine. Do it. Do it. Yeah, that's why they monetize but on ads. Don't try to like compete with Roblox or try to compete with Epic or try to like you know build some platform yeah, no. of game development. Like, okay. This is competing with Voodoo. This is competing with Hypercasual. This is building your ad network. I mean, they know more than anyone else how many downloads Hypercasual drives. And don't get me wrong, I'm drinking a lot of Hypercasual Kool-Aid and it is laced with sugar these days. But there is something in this genre that I totally get and totally understand. Every time you see an ad for Hypercasual, I've been like riding the wave. You just download it, you play it. Oh, it's awesome. It's just, it's quick hits of dopamine. You're into a session so quickly. The hypercasual genre is super interesting. I can understand why they might want to make a play. What are you talking here. about, dude? The hypercasual, it died. It already died. You were like, that's like 2019, 18 shit, dude. What are you doing? 25% of downloads. That's why you run it as an ad network from a first party perspective. Eric Seifert, where are you? I need to, I need to like, I think which those. Like- IDFV does not work. You just ask Eric. Like, that's bullshit. That was like actual pipe dream. Nonsense. But they have the accounts though. So you can have attribution within the networks. Content Fortress. Eric, where are you? Eric, c- come back. What else is that Kool-Aid laced with, Phil? Just curious. Yeah, I think it's well fermented from 2019 <laughs> at this point. Dude, you're like three years too late on this shit, dude. Right? We could have had this argument three years ago and I would have been right. And you, and now you're bringing this shit up? Hypergadual died. It's already dead. Uh... It's already dead. Dude, everyone's divesting out of it and doing different things, even Voodoo, right? Voodoo, like, cut their entire portfolio. Now they're making hybrid casual bullshit, right? Which is actually probably good. I kind of see where Phil's coming from. This is how I would interpret it. They see success in video platforms like TikTok. Short, quick. People like watching games. There's high engagement in TikTok. TikTok's awesome. And then they have this ad net, this their ad business, that is seeing success in WoW, Other games that are not your core game, but these little mini games that are interactive ads are the most, are the best ads you can have. And I'd say, how do they make a business out of two, out of those two? My guess is they're spinning out this lightweight games business from those two things. On the plus side, to your point, Laura, well, I don't know if I'm going to give you credit, Phil. (laughs) (laughs) Don't give Phil credit. (laughs) Don't feed that beard. No. No, no, no. I think where he was going was there was something laced in that Kool-Aid. So the idea of small social interactions. So when Snap shut down their games division, listen, the idea of playing the game inside of your chat with somebody else and having that social experience, there's something in general to the idea that execution that they had was not working. So from a social media perspective, there's still something to figure out with how do you get more people to interact with experiences and have fun together? No one's really figured out that formula yet. And so if YouTube wants to try to see if there's something there that I think there's an opportunity there to still explore. All right. Well, no one will recreate the magic that Line or Kakao once had with minigames in their social networks, but I guess we'll see. The hard part of selling your video game? Well, that's simply letting the community and players know it exists. That's particularly true if you're about to launch a new game and don't have an established brand yet. What's the solution? Well, it's creating your own dedicated online presence that lets you connect directly with players, gather signups for your email campaigns, and communicate things like updates about your game's development process or new features. You can build an online storefront, grow your community, run pre-orders and subscription programs, and generally bring in more long-term revenue by selling game keys, virtual goods, or bundles. Especially for indie developers, pre-orders are underutilized lifeline but any size studio can benefit from them. That time block before the game is fully released, it's prime opportunity for building awareness and getting early stage pre-launch revenue, which can be critical for sustaining your project throughout the development cycle and helps you forecast your game's first year sales. Exola can help you accomplish this with Exola Game Sales. Want to know more about how to get started generating more revenue for your game? 
visit exola.pro slash game sales or go to the link in the podcast description below. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing a full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. Anyways, as teased last week, we are now going to recap some of the biggest and most interesting new mobile games of the first half of the year. So Phil, why don't you kick off our first half review? Well, I think Scopely has given Eric a personal gift for his birthday, which is Monopoly Go's smashing success. It has about 25 million downloads already. There are some week-over-week declines. It looks like Scopely might be pulling back spend a little bit. Revenue, though, is exploding as they start to expand daily active customers, or I now have realized that's a very Scopely metric. But looking at the number of players who have spent on a given day... Okay, daily active spenders. So customers look at anyone who's logged in on a given day and have paid that day or at some point before. They don't need to have paid on the day. What you see over time is that as CPIs rise and user retention starts to decline is that customers or players who choose to spend retain better than players who don't. And so over time, the share of players who have paid at some point before or are DAX or daily active spenders starts to increase as a share of DAU. And so what that means is when you run events, when you run live ops, when you run sales, when you just do all the things that are normal in games, your revenue tends to increase over time until you get to that right side of the DAC curve when DACs are starting to decline. That's really when you're in elder care management. But back to Monopoly Go, it is already exploding in terms of revenue as they continue to grow DAC. It's got about $9 million on a daily basis. It's hard to figure out what they're doing in ads. Scopely has made aggressive investments here, maybe 500K, maybe a million tops when it comes to ads. So maybe nine to 10 million when it comes to a complete revenue package. If anyone could see me, I would be doing a smug little dance because I called it in episode 228 that if they played their live ops hand right and their post-launch hand right, it would be the strongest non-midcore game in their portfolio. That was a correct call. The second part of my analysis in that episode was whether it would displace CoinMaster, and I would measure this in revenue. Surprisingly, looking at Data AI and comparing to Board Kings, CoinMaster, Dice Dreams, and, and Monopoly Go, CoinMaster is still ahead in revenue. Just looking at the week of June 4th. Doesn't surprise me. There's no topping CoinMaster. That's what I said. It's a great, yeah. <laughs> well, CoinMaster took home roughly $20 million to Monopoly Go's 8.5, excluding ads. And I think it's unlikely that Monopoly Go is earning $12 million a week in ads. So I would say it's safe to say it hasn't necessarily displaced CoinMaster yet. As a reminder, <laughs> as strong of a game as Monopoly Go is, it's not that it's a worse game or, or anything like that. It's a great game. It's just that first mover advantage that CoinMaster has that makes a massive difference in just capturing and retaining the paying users. You know, you can't really argue they, they really successfully executed against a great CoinMaster clone with an amazing IP that seems to be resonating. But... You still have to keep in mind that they are spending an insane amount of money on UA right now, probably like almost a million dollars a day. That has not stopped. The downloads continue to raise and they're not getting organics, right? Because the app store is a fucking disaster. But the little birdies are telling me that they still believe that they are spending profitably, right? And if that's true, they actually could catch up to CoinMaster if that is true. 
But what we need to see is the spigot turn off. We need to see the downloads to decline precipitously. I mean, we're still at 2 million a week downloads, which is insane, right? That's fucking insane. That will really determine whether or not there's actually scaling revenue, right? If revenue is stacking on these cohorts, right? Think about it from the perspective of the company itself, right? So this is a very, very important game from the perspective of this acquisition that Savvy made, right? This game justifies the valuation that they received that when it happened, I thought it was too expensive. If this game is as successful as it seems to be, then it justifies that purchase price from Savvy, right? The second thing is that the one thing that like the Savvy acquisition does for Scopely is that profitability becomes less of a necessity, right? They can spend unprofitably still makes sense for them to continue to grow their publishing and continue to grow this business. Not that they're necessarily going to spend unprofitably, but they don't need to spend profitably anymore in order to raise more money and to tell the story to new investors because they don't need any new investors. They've already got the ultimate investor, right? And they've done like 60 million in revenue or something, right? Total. And this game has been around since 2015 or 16, right? My point is, is that they spent like six or seven years making this game right? Which probably cost them at least, I don't know, $60 million. And they probably spent a million dollars a day so far. The game's been out for like 80 days, right? So that's like $80 million. So this game is like, to bring to market, is probably 150 to $200 million, right? So you have to put that in perspective. If you have $180 million to invest in a mobile game, more power to you, right? Again, this market has become a battle of the big, right? The small guys just don't have any shot at reaching any type of success here. $60 million on $180 million investment in the first six months. Like, good luck trying to sell that, right? But again, my point is that this is what success looks like in the new world order with Apple's terrible privacy policies. So we'll see how it continues to do and keep tracking it. But what I really want to see is when they stop spending, right? Or spend a lot less. And then you can actually see if revenue continues to grow or just declines without downloads. Yeah. I mean, they're spending so much because, listen, it's Scopely. So savvy or no savvy, this company, this leadership team, this culture is about kicking ass and making money. UA is a machine at this company. And so they are spending that much because there's a return there. And as someone who actually worked on Monopoly version one back in 2018, when I was at Scopely, listen, I'm happy for these guys. I'm happy also for the folks at Hasbro who must be like, oh my God, we have a hit on our hands. How do we get more hits like this? How do we swing big and get the grand slam that came from this game? So the other thing to note about all the KPIs that we didn't touch on was retention. I think retention is super, super strong for this game. And what that's going to do is give them a little bit more room later on when you look at that payback window, when you look at the LTV curve, because people are staying in this game, that's going to make that better. That's why they're another reason why they're continuing to spend. So I dug into Data AI and they have an advertising section. So you can see both Admon a little bit and they have that extra service where you can really see Admon. But I just dug into from a UA perspective, you know, Chris, we talk about this all the time with things being so challenging, what were they doing? And they have a ton of creatives that are still running across a number of different channels. And the channel mix is a little bit different too. So on iOS, they have been running ads that even from soft launch, you mentioned the game's been out for like 80 days. It came out in mid-April. They have probably have like 10 to 20 ads that have been running since before launch. So as a marketing and a creative team to see your ads running that long, is gold. And so that Barcelona creative team, like somebody should give them like a super high five because the creative that they did for the game is on fire and helping them to really work. So this is another reason why you pay a license, right? We talked about brand integrations and celebrity integrations. Remember, Coinmaster doesn't pay a license. You know, Monopoly is a license. So anywhere from 15 to 25%, I don't know exactly what they're paying, but that's a typical fee for a license you know, is that worth it? I would say in this particular case, it does look like the ads are able to do really well and continue to convert. So I just want to dig into the channel mix for one last second on one last point. So by looking at what US iOS is doing, it's really interesting the channel they're using there is a Mobi. And then you look at Android US and what's working there is YouTube. I'm just looking at the number of creatives. I'm not like looking at actual performance. And so 
again, you have to be really smart as a developer and make sure that the channel mix that you're looking at is different by platform so that you can make sure to maximize whatever it is you can. So just impressive, impressive stuff to see all of this going on for them. Kudos, guys. All right. <clears throat> From rolling dice to rolling hard, Phil, tell us about the cross-platform shooter Farlight 84. We talked about Farlight 84 a couple of weeks ago. It is the battle royale out of the Chinese developer Lilith, which is best known for their billion-dollar hit AFK Arena. They also did some incredible work on Rise of Kingdoms, which is a 4X game. This launched in April. It is not looking good for Farlight 84. I think I'm going to have to eat some humble pie on this one. Mobile revenue is moderate, around 150 to 200K, maybe 50 million a year if they're lucky. Steam, again, it's a dual skew game doing another 100K in DAU on Steam. They just slapped it on there. It's not a particularly great optimization. So a lot of players are fighting through some pain to play this game on Steam. But at the end of the day, this one does not look like a hit. 16 million downloads, a million four in-app purchases. Mice nuts. <laughs> this is not a successful launch is what I'm trying to say. This does not belong in this list. <laughs> so it is a bomb, right? Because the amount of money they spent, Lilith must have spent on this game was tremendous, both marketing. 16 million downloads is not a small amount and the amount of money it costs to make the game. So that is a disaster, right? That is a bomb. Let's see if they shut it down. If they shut it down within the year, I mean, that's a pretty clear indication that it's a fail. I mean, if they're not beat, if they're not beating the variable costs, they will shut. Oh, it they down. will like, shut. Oh, yeah, one hundred percent. Right. Well, I want to bring up a game that is definitely not mice nuts. Nike got us a victory. So you might know that I've got a core thesis that anime thirst is an incredibly strong force in mobile gaming. Oh, stop! Stop! stop. Why would I stop when Nike got us a victory? Is absolutely crushing it. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just go watch a gameplay trailer. This is a thirsty, thirsty game, and it is paying off. So according to Data AI, the game has 9.6 million downloads and 307 million in revenue globally. That's a revenue per download of $32. We're not talking revenue per payer. We're talking revenue per download of $32 per player. That is freaking incredible. So... If anyone working on this game is listening, pour some fucking money into this game. Advertise the hell out of it. Flood our Twitter feeds with thirst traps because you have an absolute crusher on your hands. Dude, it's all in Japan because that's anime. It's like 60% of the revenue is coming out of Japan. And a ton out of the US. About? And it could make a yes. lot more out of the US if they spent some 50 more money million. on marketing. The 50 million in the U.S. is probably from Japanese people that are in the U.S. Does that money not count? Is their money not good? Like, there's a giant market for anime games worldwide. Isn't Star Rail anime? Isn't yeah. Genshin Impact anime? Just throwing that out there. Ugh. This game could clearly be advertising more. Uh, it's just bad advice all around, just all right. saying. Well, Crest does not believe in the power of anime thirst, but he is wrong. The market has proven him wrong. Multiple accounts, but let's move on to another crusher, Jen, Diablo Immortal. Okay, well, it's not anime. And also, I think the goal of this podcast is to get 52 fucks in for <laughs> Eric's birthday. <laughs> Significantly more fucks. Did I say the F word? I don't even remember saying the F word. Oh my God. <laughs> we have to like M rate our podcast when Cress is on and it is G rated when you are not on. But anyway, okay. Sorry about that. It's fine. We're all adults here. <laughs> All right, so Diablo Immortal. I was a huge player in this game myself. I spent probably $1,000 that I regret, but it was fun while it lasted. Whoa, Jen, $1,000? Holy crap. Yeah, I don't know. I got caught up in it. I was playing PvP and I wanted to kick ass. And then I realized the error of my ways and I dropped the game because also I was spending a lot of time. Anyway, so I wasn't the only one. So according to data AI estimates, Diablo Immortal has crossed the 500 million revenue milestone. So there have only been 14 mobile games that have crossed the half billion dollar milestone faster than Diablo Immortal. So among them, Pokemon Go passed that milestone in two months. Genshin Impact that we just talked about, which obviously, you know, anime must suck in that game. They took them four months. Candy Crush did it in eight months. So 250 to 300K a day, could be a $1 billion a year title, according to Phil. And we don't even know the PC performance, right? So this is only the mobile data. Maybe you add another 10 to 20%. Phil is cheering in the background as I really pitch cross-platform and additional SKUs to help make something even bigger. 
The largest percentage of lifetime spend came from NetEase's home market of China. So that was about 37%, which makes sense, right? If it's developed for them with a lot of the monetization techniques and Eastern design, that makes total sense. The game also had a lot of success in the U.S. The U.S. is about 24% of the total. And last time we talked about, you know, did Diablo 4 have a little bit of an impact? You know, when I looked last time, it had an impact on installs in Brazil. I haven't looked again recently, but Phil would like to, like Laura did earlier, do a little dance and a jig and celebrate his call that this was going to be big. I really want the PMs at Blizzard to do a dance and get excited about what they've achieved here. And what they need to do is they need to shove it in all of their HD friends' face because they didn't back down for monetization. They held their ground. They used the IP in interesting ways. And I hope they use this to instigate a culture shift within Blizzard. Congrats to the product management team at Blizzard for creating something from nothing, from having this incredible victory. And honestly, you know, at the end of, let's say, five years, I think this game is going to make a serious run for Diablo 4's money. And that would be the ultimate shame for the old guard at Blizzard if this were able to do it. And this is another vindication for just mobile at Blizzard. Arc Rumble is up next. I hope these PMs can continue to deliver and continue to change the culture, not only when it comes to mobile, when it comes to monetization too. Okay. I agree with most of what you said, except that, look, this game is making $8 million a month. After eight months, it was making $80 million eight months ago, right? So it's going to take another seven years just to hit the numbers that we saw from Diablo 4 in the week one, right? The math does not work, right? At $8 million a month. You said it was going to surpass Diablo 4? It's never going to surpass Diablo 4 ever. So it's already made over $500 million. Is it the quickest to, re- to reach a billion yeah, dollar that, run that You're on, suggesting on that this could be bigger than Diablo 4. That's complete fucking nonsense. All your points made sense except for the last <laughs> one. Like, it doesn't make sense. Diablo 4 has already made more than this ever can make in its lifetime. Diablo has made probably, what, $700 million They so announced 666. So. Seven, eight hundred million? Yeah. Sure, like on a cohort-adjusted basis, Diablo 4 is beating Diablo Immortal, but when you look at at least total revenue right now, they're pretty much neck and neck. And at the end of the day, the decline for Diablo Immortal is at a much slower rate than what I will assume will happen with Diablo 4, which is that revenue will go off a cliff because they have no live service strategy and no MTX. (laughs) Just stop. Just stop. Okay. First of all, this game has been a huge success. It is the exact same single-player RPG shark fin type revenue that we see from every other fucking single-player game, no matter what country, whether it's Japan, Korea, or whatever, it's not sustained at all, right? It went from 80 million eight months ago, it's down to 8 million, and it had a little spike recently, but that's the run rate, right? And then they did an exceptional job. I can't give the PMs credit at Blizzard, by the way. I just can't. I I know that these designs were made in Asia, right? Fundamentally, right? They may have approved them and allowed them, but they certainly pulled out a lot of monetization that NetEase wanted to keep included. And then on top of that, I'm not 100% sure that NetEase is even involved in this game anymore because of the relationship they have with Blizzard. So maybe if they can pull this out and actually do well for the next 12 months, maybe you could give that. But most of the design, and again, was from NetEase because they built the fucking game, right? They, 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 Blizzard didn't have anything to do with this game. Can you cough out a number for where Diablo Immortal will close 2023 in terms of revenue? Take 8 million times 12. That's what they're going to do for the next 12 months. So you think this is a game that's going to do around $100 million a year for 2023? Is that, that your yeah, forecast? of course. I mean, look at it. Okay, I will absolutely I will absolutely put money against you. I will absolutely bet that it will do far greater than... I'll even bet you at $150 million. I think we're just talking about the next six months. Chris saying $50 million in the next six months. What are you saying, Phil? Chris saying if it's $8 million a month and declining... It's at a $10 million run rate, so 120, yeah, 150 is actually the right number, probably. Okay, I'll, I'll take the over on that. Versus what did it do last year? $500 million. Right? I'll easily take the over on this. Let's check at the end of the year. That still is so far below the first five fucking <laughs> days of Diablo, right? And not to mention that we're going to have expansions and in-app purchases. Like, just stop with the comparison, right? There is no comparison. I'm going to bring up one other historic franchise that made a move to mobile this year and check in on Mighty Doom, which I know it's Mice Nuts. I'm kind of bringing it up because it's Mice Nuts. So Mighty Doom... It's basically a slow follow with brand on Archero, right? It's got an estimated 17 million downloads and 4.8 million in revenue, not counting ads. And it seems that like taking a long time to follow Archero and pairing it with Doom, it just doesn't have the sort of organic pull 
or ability to advertise as Diablo did. I'm playing this game. I really enjoy it. I think the team did an excellent job here. But the combination of how long it took to get this out after the phenomenon that was Archero, combined with the IP choice of cutifying Doom. So it's like, despite the quality of the game, it just didn't bring back the Doom glory the way the AAA reboot did, which, you know, was absolutely phenomenal. And just again, a quick aside, just like Will Smith at the Oscars, the classic Doom RPG games for Philip phones absolutely slapped. So I need to go back and replay those classics because that was a fun moment in gaming. But let's close it out with the true superstar of 2023. Laura, can you take us home and talk about how big Honkai Star Rail is? The answer is massive. So MiHoYo has three games. Everyone focuses on the top two, Genshin Impact and Honkai Star Rail. But they have a third game, Honkai Impact 3, which is where Honkai Star was inspired from. Liquid and Grit does a great job summarizing the game. It'll do very high level since we haven't covered it on the podcast before. It's a turn-based combat system with an auto-battler mode. There's gacha. It's enabled but not required. Basically, they incentivize the gacha because you want these characters with specific alignments that then makes the turn-based battle easier. But you can alternatively grind to power up characters to beat battles if you don't want to actually pay for the gacha. Players tend to like the fun character interactions and the goofy side quests. And I bring this up for a point I'm going to bring up later. But Honkai revenue, it's almost entirely greater than 70% from US, China, Japan, and South Korea. And I actually think this is a better example of a game that appeals to both of Western and Asian markets. Downloads are a bit more fragmented. Top revenue countries are mostly top download countries with Indonesia, Brazil, Russia, all between you know 5 and 10%. South Korea is a bit of a surprise. It looks like they had an early blast there for downloads, captured enough of the market by revenue, and then reduced spend. Looking at the charts, Star Rail looks like it's cannibalizing Genshin. However, the total revenue is still higher with both games live. So you have the cannibalization plus the incremental revenue of Star Rail is still greater than if they would only have Genshin. Ethan, I think you were meeting Guangming Daily this weekend, right? <laughs> no, uh, not, not exactly. I'll, I'll just I'll take a quote from an article on Pocket Gamer. They translated a Guangming Daily piece, right? It said the headline: "Mihoyo made more money than either EA, Activision Blizzard, or Embracer." So here's the key paragraph: According to a translated article, Mihoyo made an estimated 3.83 billion in revenue in 2022 with net profits. Net profits of $2.26 billion. And although companies like Take-Two, $5.3 billion, Activision Blizzard, $7.5 billion, EA, $7.4 billion had higher revenues, none matched MiHoYo in terms of profit. So MiHoYo boy, this company is crushing <laughs> it. That one was just for you, Laura. Five years from now, I think it's going to be really interesting to see if either of these games have toppled PUBG or Honor of Kings as the absolute height of mobile revenue. Just a phenomenal job out of MiHoYo with these two. Phil, are we seeing cannibalization? Yes or no? I'm a little more skeptical on the cannibalization piece. I think if you squint hard enough or you torture the data hard enough, certainly will confess to anything. <laughs> and it looks like a lot of people seem to think it's confessed to that. But it's an extremely character-driven gotcha. So when you look at revenue, it's very spiky. I try to smooth it out by taking three-month averages, still very spiky. The standard deviation on this game looks like it's, you know, it's the 50 million a month. So there's just a lot of fluctuation. It's hard for me to really see a trend line right now. Downloads have looked a little soft this year for Genshin. It doesn't look like an incredible decline. So it's hard to know without a control group. It's hard to know the counterfactual. I'm just a little bit more skeptical of the cannibalization. I'd love to see where this lands at the end of the year and see if we have more evidence of this. Yeah, I'm going to agree because you can take the numbers and cut it different ways and it'll give you a different answer. But I mean, if you look seven weeks before and seven weeks after launch of that, then they're down about 45% from Genshin. But then, like you said, it's all character driven. So they could introduce a new character and the revenue would spike dramatically. What I think should happen, if I was to guess, is that it should be about a little bit better than if it was Genshin alone, right? So the revenue should start to flatline between the two games ultimately over a longer term period. So there is cannibalization. But it is an amazing execution in a new gameplay style, but the exact same kind of like monetization meta with pay to win gotcha mechanics to get new characters. So 
brilliant design and they executed flawlessly on a second game, which is really, really hard to do in this world, right? And so, yeah, hats off to them. And they, you know, they spent gajillions of dollars marketing this game to make sure that it was a success around the world. And again, I don't want to like beat the same drum. This is a type of game that actually is sustainable, right? From a revenue perspective, because they're introducing new characters. It's collection and character upgrade Evo and stuff like that. That's why Diablo is a much tougher sell from that perspective because it's a character-driven game. Those games do not generally have the lasting power on mobile in, in a free-to-play model. So anyway, this is, is a brilliant design of, of a collection upgrade Evo model on a 3D world, cross-platform, right, on PC console, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, just to jump in real quick, one is, I think we talked about it last time, we estimate between 300 to $500 million spent on UA. And earlier we were talking about on Monopoly Go, are you willing to invest 160 to 250 million? Like these guys are almost at a billion dollars in investing in this project and it'll pay off because they figured out how to deliver on this. So on the cannibalization point, I know this is going to sound like a crazy comparison, but you know, back at Zynga, when we were doing the Vills, Farmville, Cityville, Petville, all the different Vills, is, you know, the sum is greater than the whole of the parts. So in these types of experiences, you do see cannibalization, but the cannibalization is never going to be enough to outweigh the overall benefit. So also from the toy industry, another crazy example is, so I did Star Wars toys for many, many years, and then Lego introduced Star Wars Lego. And that absolutely ate into the action figure business. But if you're a Lucasfilm and you're a licensor, you're like, I don't care because the pie just got so much bigger. So sorry, Hasbro. Sorry, you guys got cannibalized a little bit or 20%, right? It's generally in that range. So if you're the overall strategic owner of that game or those brands where that portfolio from a portfolio play, these types of things make a ton of sense. The last point I'll make is that if I was going to say what kind of game a Final Fantasy mobile game should have been, it's this. After playing for about two hours, this is what I think Square Enix should have done for mobile. Well, with that, I'm going to call it. Go to the Deconstructor Fun Slack. Let us know what the highlights of 2023 are that we snubbed by not covering. And if you're not a member already and you have five years or more of industry experience, apply now at deconstructorfun.com slash slack. It's a great private online community to be a part of. Thank you all for joining us this week. See you next week. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us